and a very warm welcome to the gardening podcast that's for everyone who enjoys growing their own flowers, fruits and vegetables. I'm Dan and I'm Julia and together we're two good gardeners. We're an all-inclusive podcast so whether your garden is big or small, north or south, sunny or shady, we are here to share our gardening know-how and great ideas that you can try at home. And now we've whetted your appetite, let's crack on with episode four of series two, sponsored by Alatex, home of the modern Victorian greenhouse, designed in the UK for over 70 years and built worldwide. Hello everyone and welcome to a special festive episode of Two Good Gardeners, which we're devoting to preparing your garden and home for Christmas. It might feel a bit early to mention the big C, but if you want to force bulbs, make preserves or source the perfect Christmas tree, now's the perfect time to get cracking. As ever, we'll share lots of hints, tips and ideas to help you through the next few weeks. Before we kick off, we'd like to update you with what we've been up to since we last got together. Julia, what's been keeping you out of mischief lately? Oh, mischief. I wish I had been mischievous, Dan. I have been out and about signing and selling copies of the Little Growers Cookbook because it is, as you said, the run-up to Christmas. This book is a perfect gift for any age and written especially for children. Those of you who don't know it, it's a growing and cooking book full of easy ideas and inspiration to lure children off their screens and out into the green. It's packed full of seasonal, simple growing ideas weekend projects and recipes for all seasons. It makes a perfect Christmas present and is available from my website which is www.letterspublishing.com. Anyway Dan you're not one for sitting around are you so what's been keeping you busy? No I've definitely got ants in my pants Julia but the weather (laughs) has been keeping me out of the garden so I've been busy making new videos for my newly reinvigorated YouTube channel. I've had to learn the whole thing over again and in fact I'll be making my Christmas content this week and sharing it with everyone soon. I've had the great pleasure of working with a local team who've done such a great job with the editing of the videos, doing all the stuff that I don't have time to. And yes, it's been a joy being in front of the camera again. I've been to a few small events and of course there are lots and lots coming up which I'll talk about at the end. Roll on January when I get a moment to breathe. Yes, I know what you mean. It is a really busy season, isn't it? But talking of that season... Every episode we discuss a hot topic and this time we're going to talk about ways to fill your home with flowers and plants over the Christmas period. I am feeling a touch smart as I have already planted one pot of scented narcissi and tucked it in the cupboard under the stairs. Plus there are 50 paper white bulbs on their way to me. I love planting them in glass vases, bowls and terracotta pots because they bring so much joy and their scent is intoxicating. So Narcissi and Paper Whites, I've mentioned, but they are the easiest ones to force and the most natural ones, I think. And as with all force bulbs, you need a mix of potting compost or bulb fibre or both. And you place the base of the bulbs just below the surface of the compost, leaving the rest exposed. There's another small daffodil, I think they're called minuet daffodils, which are also really easy to force. They're bright, bright yellow with orange centres. They're really great, but they don't have any scent. And I, I, for one, like the small bulbs to have scent. And another great one, which most of you will probably put together with Christmas, is amaryllis, which I think it might even be known as the Christmas, the Christmas bulb. 
They are seemingly quite expensive to buy. I have a feeling they're between ten and fifteen pounds each now. Maybe they can be bought a bit cheaper in sets, but the bulbs would be smaller. But they are blooming good value, I have to say. They can produce up to five lily-type flowers on just one stem. And more often than not, a second stem appears. And if you're really lucky, a third one. And actually, that's happened, happened quite recently with me. In the last two or three years, I seem to get th three stems. I love apple blossom, which is seemingly fitting. Um, but obviously, you have the sort of the real Christmas reds that most people symbolise that goes with Christmas and, and they are good and then hyacinths can be forced which most people will know about and lots of different colours from pink to white to, to bluey purple and they do have the headiest of scents they really are lovely muscari so muscari are a type of hyacinth but they're known as grape hyacinths they're the little tiny blue hyacinths they don't have any scent. They come in blue or white, but you can cram loads of them into a container and they do last a long time. And I think they look really pretty at every stage, just the bare bulb stage with maybe a little bit of green pointing out. There's something very pleasing about them um, and they don't need any support. So some of the others will need support because they get quite, quite tall. So when you're considering what you're going to order and, and plant, maybe consider what the flower actually looks like at the end because some of them if they're quite tall you'll need to think about adding some form of support i use twigs obviously free and collected around the garden but they do add a really natural look as well um and i i think that's all part of it keep them somewhere cool and bright so the famous spare bedroom or even a greenhouse if it's not heated would be great they need just enough warmth to kick them into action and four to six weeks later they should start to bloom and then you can bring them into your living areas where it's much warmer. Of course I hate any waste um, and with all forced bulbs apart from the paper whites and the amaryllis you can replant them in your garden after they finish flowering and I always do this in springtime and they will flower the following year and every other year beyond that. The first year the flowers would be slightly spindly but no less on the scent front and then they get better and better after that and I now have quite a pleasing expanding collection in my herb bed outside the kitchen door which is actually very cheery in springtime. And then finally, there is a really unusual trick to stop the stems and getting too leggy in the heat of your house. And also without much natural daylight, the stems sort of start getting really tall. And that is to give them a little drink of vodka. Although toxic to plants, alcohol is toxic to plants, weirdly, diluted vodka will stunt their growth and not the flowers, but just the stems. But it must be diluted one part vodka to seven parts water. For goodness sake, don't give them a shot. And if you're going to do this, do it when the stems are about five to eight centimetres tall and just make this your feed. Instead of tap water, just add that mix of vodka each time you water them. <laughs> you're laughing, Dan. Well, I have <laughs> never heard that before. I think the chances <laughs> of me being able to wrestle the vodka bottle out of my partner's hands is quite slim. I can't see me being allowed to um, tip it on the plants. But where did you find that <laughs> trick, Julia? On the World Wide Web, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fascinated now to see if that works. Brilliant. You'll have to be like a sneaky teenager trying to sneak the vodka out of the drinks cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh dear. Anyway, um, I'll be trying it this year, just so that you know. I'm very happy to report back after Christmas. Um, but just on a note on amaryllis bulbs, because I am a sucker for amaryllis. I love them. And I kind of always wonder, I've tried to bring them back the following year, but is there a knack, Dan? <laughs> what do you do? Do you keep amaryllis and do they flower the following year? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I mean, it's neglect is the answer, as as with many plants. Um, so you really need to let your amaryllis flower, remove the dead flower head once that's finished and let the leaves grow. So don't cut the leaves off until they decide that they're done. And for Christmas, that might be as early as spring. But if you're growing them naturally, they would naturally flower around Easter time, then the foliage will start to die back in midsummer. And it's very important for amaryllis that they have a rest. They need to have dry rest. So the easiest thing to do is sling them under the greenhouse staging or tip them on their side in the pot so that water doesn't get in and just leave them alone for a little while. And they will tell you when they're ready to get going again because you will start to see the leaves emerging, fresh leaves emerging from the crown of the bulb, from the centre of the bulb. And and then bring them back into good light and let them get on with it. But a little feed won't go amiss as well after flowering. Just make sure you feed them and that will help them to build up a nice big bulb as the leaves are photosynthesizing. And if you do this really well, you, you'll actually end up getting a bigger and bigger bulb every year. If you don't do it so well, the bulb might get a little bit smaller and you might just get one stem the following year, but it's still a lot better because, as you say, the outlay for an amaryllis bulb is quite high. And um, I used to go on regular trips to the Netherlands in December and always used to buy them while I was there, where, of course, they're an awful lot cheaper than they they are here. But they are an investment, well worth it in my opinion. So do try and keep them if you can. Neglect, as with Christmas cacti and other Christmas plants we're going to talk about, is one of the best ways to keep them going. Yeah, okay. Well, tell us more about the Christmas plants then, because that's not really my department. I'm a forced bulb girl. Forced bulb girl, really. (laughs) Yes, well, of course, aside from all those fabulous forced bulbs that you've just talked to us about lots of us are going to be going out and buying growing plants to decorate our homes this Christmas I usually go to town with cyclamen hellebores amaryllis the paper whites you talked about and orchids but whatever I choose I always keep a few important things in mind to start with, I think it's really important to know where the plants you're buying have been grown. And if you can opt for British grown plants, that is the best possible. I'm not going to get all bar humbug about it, but I think in this era of eco-enlightenment, we should all be conscious that plants like poinsettias and orchids are intensively grown in heated greenhouses and they're likely to find themselves on the compost heap at some point in the new year unless you are very very diligent and determined to keep them going. So anything we can do to reduce the number of miles these plants have to travel will reduce the environmental impact these plants already have. It's critical if you're buying any tropical or subtropical plants, so plants that like a warmer environment than the UK in the winter, which is most of them, 
it's really critical that they don't catch a chill at any point in their journey to your home. That's not always easy to know because things can happen to plants before they get into your hands. But if you're buying them from a florist, never ever buy a tropical plant like a poinsettia or an orchid that's been outside the shop, displayed outside the shop, it will already have caught a chill and the damage will be done. So make sure you buy plants that have been nicely cosseted inside, out of drafts, and on their journey home, make sure they're really well wrapped up. So don't go walking down the street with your beautiful poinsettia in your arms um, <laughs> with the wind lashing and the rain, because again, it will only take a few moments for that poinsettia to decide that it doesn't like that very much and drop all its leaves the minute you get indoors again. And once you do get them indoors, give them a little drink, especially if they're dry, put them in good light in a warm room and away from drafts and radiators because virtually all plants detest both of those. So it doesn't matter if they're tropical or not tropical. Drafts, which are basically caused a sort of fluctuation between cold and warm and radiators, which give a very intense heat, are going to cause your plants to curl up and die, most likely. If not, they'll probably encourage pests and diseases and they'll just become very weak. If you stand these plants on trays of moist pebbles, that will help a little bit if the room's very warm because the moist pebbles will create a humid atmosphere around the plant. Poinsettias are especially temperamental, so my advice really would be to just steer clear of them altogether. But if you do love them, I would suggest you buy them as close to Christmas as possible, love them for as long as they last, and then resign them to the compost heap, unless you are very determined to keep them going, in which case they'll need some really good light through the Christmas period and through the new year. They'll probably drop some leaves and then they will take a little bit of time to readjust. And if you're lucky, you may get some colour from them the following year. But they're not really grown to be perennial plants in this country. Much better and much easier to grow are things like cyclamen, hellebores, chrysanthemums, jasmine and azaleas because they're more tolerant of cool temperatures and they will benefit from a short stay indoors before returning to an unheated greenhouse or spare room after Christmas. They won't like a centrally heated space for more than a few days but they do have a good chance of surviving for a long time afterwards if they're planted outside and this includes potted Christmas trees which will stay looking fresh for a good two or three weeks indoors but then do need to go back outside into the cold remembering to give them a little bit of water if you have a dry winter. Any flowering plants, essential that they are deadheaded because that will help to keep the flowers coming right through Christmas and into the new year. Mm, good. Well, Dan, I've seen that some people decorate their houseplants with lights and all sorts of decorations rather than having a tree. What do you make of that? And of course, it is more environmentally friendly, but do you think that's a, a way forward? Well, of course, as an ex-Christmas buyer, I endorse all forms of Christmas decoration, <laughs> provided it's tasteful, of course. But um, 
Yeah, I'm not sure. I I think I like uh, soft white wire lights, maybe on a battery, just twined through plants. And I've got some in my garden room that have lights going through them. I'm not sure that they need a lot more adornment. But um, but yes, each to his own. If that's what you want to do, if you want baubles on your bromeliads, go for it. <laughs> Well, I'm not really fussed about growing plants for Christmas or or buying them in. I much prefer gathering foliage and berries for vases. I mean, I love my false bulbs, but I do prefer them to flower after Christmas. That's a bit controversial. But that's when everything is packed away and the house does feel very bare. They're the one thing that, for me, make the dark months more bearable. I always add moss to the pots because I think it looks really pretty around the base of the bulbs and it help stop them from drying out because you mentioned that obviously things can dry out near radiators and we all have quite a lot of heat on in the winter don't we um so the moss looks good and also i think it smells really lovely when i walk past to get a really lovely earthy whiff from the outdoors which is kind of quite pleasing with the beautiful scent yeah so one thing i didn't mention of course is that the victorians were very keen on digging up plants from the garden and forcing them into flower for Christmas. Anything from primroses to lily of the valley. It's not just the flowering plants. But that is another way to get plants into your home at Christmas, which is to use what you've got. There are some plants that are very sympathetic to being dug up, bought indoors for a short time, and then put back outside when you're ready. So if you're being thrifty, have a think about that as well. Just a Another tip from me, which is with cyclamen, they really don't like to be wet around the corn. So steer clear of the moss with those and water them from the base because that will make them a lot happier. I am a big fan of plants indoors at Christmas. In fact, I have started to bring plants indoors to decorate already because I think they (laughs) represent good value for money compared to cut flowers and just please stay clear of those horrible aberrations that you sometimes see in garden centres, the yellow paint sprayed heathers and metallic succulents. I'm not sure I can forgive anybody for those. (laughs) I agree. Well, fear not, Dan, there are no cyclamens in my house. I've wasted enough money over the years buying them. And usually after one week, the flowers go limp, they die and then mould sets in. It's always a disaster. But I do get my spray paint, dare I say it, well, gold, not yellow or bright colours, and I spray my dry dallium seed heads because they always look magnificent. They kind of twinkle in the lights at Christmas time. Is that allowed? (laughs) Oh, that's definitely allowed, yes, especially if the paint (laughs) is eco-friendly. But yes, that's allowed. And of course, you can keep them and use them year after year. So I think that's in a slightly different league. I'll let you off. Now, every episode, Julia reveals a simple, thrifty project that we can all try, and I wax lyrical about a product from my online garden shop. Julia's going to kick us off with an absolutely brilliant idea that uses two waste materials we all have too much of. Julia, spill the beans, or should that be spuds? (laughs) Yes, yes, spill the spuds. Don't say that after a shot of vodka. I am going to talk about reusing grow bag compost to plant potatoes for Christmas. So I always save the spent compost from my grow bags that I've been using to grow tomatoes in the greenhouse in the summer. It still has some life left in it, a few nutrients, and yes, I could add it to my compost heap, but 
I like to save myself the energy of wheelbarrowing it all the way down to the end of the garden. So what I do is I tip out the contents into containers for my tulip planting or winter planting and the rest I add to the raised bed in the greenhouse. There's no waste is my motto. So one of these containers that I tip it into is an old compost bag. That is just a bag turned inside out. Obviously not the grow bag bag because that would have three holes in it but just a general compost bag turn it inside out you don't have all the writing and black is easy to kind of hide it's not so much of an eyesore and I call this my Christmas sack because I'll be growing potatoes in it to eat on Christmas day fingers crossed now because I'm a little bit late to this party I think normally about September would be a good time to plant them um, they won't they won't be huge but I still will get a crop just enough for the big day so what I do is I keep the sack in the greenhouse to avoid any frost. Here in Sussex, it's been very mild, but I don't want to risk any form of frost because if the frost gets to the green tops or the stem, it will go all the way back down to the road and destroy the crop. There are special potato bags that you can buy, hessian sacks, or but you could use an old bucket or one of those brightly coloured tubs that you see around as long as you put drainage holes in the base. Always do that and I do that with my compost bag. So what I do is I mix the compost and whatever I've got, grow bag and anything else that's going around and I fill it to about three quarters full. And then in go three seed potatoes and then I cover them up as usual as I would in the spring and then I move the bag to sit on my raised bed which is near the door in the greenhouse just because it's easier to water them and I know I haven't got to move them because it's actually quite heavy with the compost in. Now my preferred variety to grow for Christmas potatoes is Duke of York because they do make a good roasty but it's very important to keep them watered once you've popped them in, the, in your bag or your sack don't let them dry out as it will reduce the size and the number of potatoes produced. The foliage will get quite tall and spindly and kind of a bit unsightly and probably a bit annoying because it's looking for more light like those false bulbs that we talked about earlier but that is perfectly normal for winter potatoes and don't panic when you start to see the foliage die back just leave them untouched until you're ready to harvest them which may be even Christmas Eve. So even if the foliage dies back two weeks before, they're quite happy just sitting there. I probably might just add a bit more water if the compost looks totally dry. And then come Christmas Eve or whenever it is you're ready to use them, just tip the bag, the sack or the container upside down and rummage away through the compost for potatoes. It is always a really nice surprise. Yes, it sounds great. And so, something fun to do with children as well, I think. Yes, you're quite right, Dan. And obviously, it's one of our projects in the Little Growers Cookbook. Of course. Now, I think if people were going to try doing it now, which is sort of early November, I think people would expect their potatoes to be ready in the new year, providing they can keep them frost free. Is that about right? It probably is about right. But you never know, because if it remains mild... I, I quite like winging it, so I'm doing it this week. <laughs> yes, try it. That's the thing with gardening, isn't it? You've just got to try yes. things and see how it works out. I'm with you. Duke of York, Red Duke of York, great potatoes. And of course, you know, as you said, potatoes can be left in the ground or in these containers for some time before you need them. So you don't have to feel that you need to use them straight away like you do with so many other crops that will um, perish if you don't use them straight away. So it's your turn to discuss one of the products that you sell on your online garden shop. I have an inkling 
or a sparkling of what it might be, but do tell us what you're <laughs> going to talk about. Well, I thought since we were having a festive episode, we should talk about Christmas decorations. Before I shed my suit and said goodbye to the commute, I was head of Christmas at John Lewis, a job I had coveted since I started working for the department store in 1996. Can you believe? A long time ago. (laughs) The job took me all around the world looking for Christmas decorations. So when I left to start Dan Cooper Garden, I immediately got to thinking about how I could incorporate Christmas into my new venture. Working with one of my favourite suppliers in Poland, I developed a collection of garden-inspired glass ornaments. They're all mouth-blown and hand-decorated. The process just fascinates me. It's changed so little over the decades, and people often comment on how similar the ornaments are to the ones that their grandparents had. The manufacturing process is long and complicated so much so that I've written about it on a blog on my website if people want to know more but it all starts with a tube of glass and ends with an intricately shaped beautifully coloured bauble that anybody would treasure. I've got 28 in the range now and they vary from £5 to 20 and I buy a limited number of each every year. So I have got some favourites and I know you've seen them, Julia, but my favourite, I suppose, is the honeycomb, which is a really, really complex piece of glass blowing. It's like a little chunk of honeycomb with bees all buzzing around it and it's just the most glorious golden colour and I just think it's a work of art it's like something that's too good to be out just at Christmas. My customer's favourite is the greenhouse so I can never get enough of those they always sell out before Christmas and it's just a really beautiful gift for a garden lover they come boxed so they get transported even though they're very delicate indeed and it's just a lovely greenhouse with sort of tools balanced around the edge and a lovely rose growing over it and uh, really beautiful especially if you can get the fairy lights just behind it so that it twinkles on the tree And then new for this year, a bit of a surprise to me, I decided to do a raspberry and a blackberry and I wasn't really sure whether people would go for that. They're not the most typical Christmas icons, I suppose, but they have been my bestsellers so far this year. So teeny weeny little juicy looking blackberries and raspberries, not to be eaten, of course, but they do look (laughs) scrumptious on your tree. So that's my range. Go and have a look on the website. Oh, they are very lovely. Your new ones, the raspberry and blackberry. I had identified those as perhaps adorning my Christmas gifts because they'd look really nice just Ah, hanging off some ribbon, wouldn't they? So I need to get my order in before you sell out. So yes, I have obviously bought the greenhouse one. I've been given the greenhouse one, but I also bought it and sent it to Alatex after I worked with them on the Chelsea Flower Show in 2021. I thought it was a perfect gift to give them. It is very charming. So yes, but I've also noticed you've extended your range, not just the glass painted ones, but you've moved on to felted ones. You've got a little animal range, haven't you? And I'm rather taken with the mice that I saw and the veggies. Yes, perhaps not together, mice and veggies, I I think, particularly given our experiences earlier this year. But yes, I did decide, given that, you know, glass decorations are not something that everyone can have in their home, especially if you've got sort of kids around or pets. They can be a little bit fragile. So I thought, let's do some felt ones. They're very touchy-feely. I cannot tell you 
how popular they are with children. I just love it when they clap eyes on them at the events I do. It's usually the snail or the caterpillar that their eyes are light on and then they found their new best friend. So yes, if anyone's looking for a, a fun little decoration for a kid's Christmas tree or a big Christmas tree indeed, then check out Carl the Caterpillar and Shelby the Snail because they are <laughs> favourites at the moment. No, they are very cute. And yes, I guess I would be worried if you had maybe started selling a rat as a decoration because that's, that's been well, on Nemesis, isn't it? The rat. <laughs> I don't mind a felt rat. It's the real ones that I don't like very much. Now it's almost time for me to reveal my pick of the bunch. But first, Julia, what tasty treat has made it to the top of your crops today? <laughs> oh, tasty treat, I like that. Well, it is tasty, but it's all about roots this time, Dan. I have plonked for beetroot. It's a wonderful addition to the kitchen garden because both the leaves and the roots, which rise out of the ground, add a bright, rich colour and it's a dual-purpose vegetable as both the leaves and roots are edible. And you know me, I like my veg to work quite hard. So now beetroot, it's what are we? We're sort of beginning of November. I still have quite a few that I've left in the garden and they are still growing. It's quite wet here in Sussex and they're still getting quite big some of them about twice the size of my hand but I'm all for leaving things in the ground for as long as I can and beetroot are a very easy veg to neglect and to do that with so I could leave some of them in the ground all winter and they'll still be edible next year until they start in the spring to grow and they'd get quite woody so that's why I'm talking about them now They are packed full of antioxidants that fight cell damage and help reduce the risk of heart disease. So not only do they look good, but they taste good and they make you feel healthy. The word beta is derived from the Celtic word, which is for red as well. So as I've said, I grow them all year round, um, but the optimum time to harvest them is between May and October because they are they are much sweeter and tastier then. So some of the enormous ones I've been harvesting um, since about midsummer, and I will harvest them. I will use them in soups now. I roast them. And I also will be pickling them as well. And they are so easy to sow. They're quite sort of knobbly, quite fairly large seeds. And you get an awful lot in one packet. So I love that as well. I love value for money, as now you're all beginning to know I'm the thrifty one of the pair. And two packs of beetroot seeds would see me enough through the whole year. That's plenty for me for all my different uses. Um, Love them or hate them. They do taste quite earthy and I kind of suppose I get why some people don't like them, but they are so good for you. And I, as I've said, am in the love camp and I grow them every year for as many months as possible. So what I normally do in the winter is I sow them in lengths of guttering and that's just for their leaves to harvest their young leaves. So I sow them very tightly together. I sprinkle them and I don't kind of worry about spacing or anything and I just harvest the leaves when I want. And actually, if you're thinking, ooh, beetroot leaf, that sounds awful, you will have eaten them without realising it because those mixed bags of salad that are sold in the supermarkets are actually full of them. Those little tiny leaves with the bright red stems and veins, that is actually a beetroot leaf. And they are really tasty and they add good colour to a winter salad as well. So if you've got any hanging around and you don't want to leave them in the ground like I do, then preserving is a must. 
Pickling them works really, really well. And I have got a really simple recipe. It takes 10 minutes to do, and it means you can keep your pickled beetroot up to about six months or a bit more in the fridge. And I'll actually share that recipe in the show notes. So Dan, do you love beetroot? Are you in the love camp or not? Yes, I'm definitely in the love camp with beetroot. My other half diligently pickles them and has recently made beetroot ketchup, which I'm very much in love with. It's quite sweet, but it's the most beautiful colour and very, very nice with the bacon sarni. So yes, there's another little, I shall have to get that recipe for the show notes as well, won't I? And of course, you know, you only have to watch programs like MasterChef to see you know just how popular they are as a garnish or as a starter or a side dish yes they're really yummy yeah well they are so versatile I mean you could eat them boiled roasted baked in cakes as we did in Little Girls Cookbook with chocolate pickle them eat them raw thinly sliced grated or even juiced which we haven't mentioned Mm. so there are quite a number of varieties that you can choose from don't be put off if you kind of just want to try it for the first time. Just go for one. There's Boltardi, which is my probably go-to favourite easy one, or Bull's Blood, which are the round, red, normal roots. But there's a really, really gorgeous one called Chioga, which is a bit like a candy helter-skelter inside. It's pink with a white sort of swirl. It looks beautiful pickled in the in the jars and just sliced thinly it looks fantastic on the plate it's really really pleasing and then there's a variety of beetroot called rainbow rainbow beets i think is one of them where you get red ones white ones orange ones yellow ones and pink ones that's really fun they look great in a row and you kind of pull up you don't really know what you're going to get um, and then there's another one that I grew last year, which is a variety called toad beetroot, which is not a round root as you would normally associate, but it's a really sort of long knobbly root. It's an unusual shape. It's got a very dark flesh and these long tapered roots. It's a bit like a very fat carrot, but with the texture of tree bark, but it's got a really good sweet nutty taste. I guess that's why it's called toad beet because it's rather like a toad skin, sort of knobbly and looks a bit rough. But anyway, if you follow me on social media, you'll know that I love growing unusual things and, um, and I grew this one last year to great success. So that's my top of the crops. Brilliant. Well, very topical. And of course, you have got time, haven't you, to get those pickles ready in time for Christmas. Perfect. Boxing Day pickle. Can't go wrong with a bit of beetroot. They are a crop that likes sort of cooler weather. So what are your top tips for where to plant beetroot? You are right, because when it's really hot and sunny in midsummer, they do tend to bolt, which is annoying. So I just think plant them somewhere where you've got maybe half a day of sun and maybe plant them either side of the summer. So plant them in the cooler months and you can't really go wrong. As long as they've got a few hours of sunshine a day, then they'll be great. I mean, rhubarb is also quite good like that. And it's quite useful to have veg that you know don't need full sun. Because let's face it, not everybody has a garden that's in full sun, do they? definitely not. Anyway, Dan, right. So on to you with your floral delights that you're going to tell us with. What are you going to talk to us about it? I mean, I heard a rumour, but mum's the word. Ah, <laughs> yes. Well, people who know me well, who might have followed me for a while, will know that I've been banging on about chrysanthemums for the last five years and saying that they're going to be the next dahlia. And I think it might be finally happening because I noticed they popped up on Gardener's World 
recently and their revival is certainly long overdue. There are pros and cons to growing chrysanthemums so I'm going to be really honest about what I see as the benefits and disadvantages of them as a garden plant and of course you can make up your own mind but I think their reputation has been very unfairly tarnished by their association with funerals, garage forecourts and of course those cheap supermarket bouquets where you occasionally see them sprayed vile colours including blue which is (laughs) one colour that chrysanthemums naturally never are and of course I'll mention chrysanthemums and everyone will be conjuring up images in their mind of old ladies or men in flat caps tending regimented rows of flowers grown for showing and that is how they have been looked at in the past. They are a flower that has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years and so they have had many different guises and they've been in and out of favour multiple times. I like to think that this is the end of their current period of misery and that we're going to see them come back in terms of popularity quite soon. And if I'm really honest, I don't think the nurserymen, the growers really help because if you go to shows like Chelsea, you'll see them still displayed in quite an old-fashioned way in bowls, all looking very prim and proper in quite gaudy colours and they do have an ability to look particularly stiff and starchy and static. And I think that is probably what people don't like about chrysanthemums or one of the things they don't like about them is that they tend to look a little bit artificial. They don't maybe have as much movement about them as some other flowers. But they, there are, you know, it's like there are horses for courses. There are some very stiff chrysanthemums and there are also some very pretty blousy ones. Recent introductions that we see in garden centres as well seem to be ball-shaped or these really miserable little ratty things that you see in trays outside supermarkets, which, I mean, are an aberration and should be ignored. And I'm definitely not fond of these. But, you know, we need more people to take the Sarah Raven approach, really, and put together chrysanthemums in beautiful colour combinations and show just how naturally they can be used among other plants in the garden and I think that is the secret. They're not the prettiest monoculture, not least because they do all of their thing really in this back end of the year. So you've got months and months and months of relative nothingness to look at while chrysanthemums are twiddling their thumbs and waiting to go out in a blaze of glory. And it is their better qualities. It's this ease of growth and how long the flowers last, particularly as cut flowers, that has given them this terrible reputation because the reason they're used in funerals and garage forecourt flowers is because they will last two, even three weeks, sometimes even without water for some of that time, and still look okay. I am surrounded by vases of chrysanthemums in my house at the moment, and some of those have been indoors for over two weeks, and they still look absolutely great. And it's that one thing, it's the big advantage of them that is has been their downfall. I agree with you, Dan, because I, in one of my many capacities, 
uh, are li- living here. I help do the church flowers. Going to get roped into that. And I need flowers that last a long time. <laughs> and I must admit, the croissants can go on for about six weeks. And you're right, with no water because the oasis dries up sometimes. <laughs> they are really, really good value for money. I don't know any flower that lasts as long and looks still quite fresh. Yes, you're right. And there are so many comparisons I could make, really, between chrysanthemums and dahlias. So until the late 1990s, early 2000s, dahlias were really out of fashion. The chrysanthemums come in just the same variety of colours and flower shapes and heights as dahlias do, but they last a lot longer. So dahlias, however much we all love them, and we both do, they're not the greatest of cut flowers because at best you'll get five days out of them and then they fall apart uh, rather unattractively. But chrysanthemums are the extreme opposite. They're they're very, very, very long-lived flowers. As I said, they've been in cultivation forever. They originate in China and Japan and they came over here in the 18th century and have been bred and hybridised and that's how we get all these great big ball-shaped things. So I'm going to start off with why I think everybody should grow chrysanthemums. And the first reason is because depending on the variety you choose, you can have them flowering from the very end of June right through Christmas and if you've got a cold greenhouse which uh, I have then you can bring some clumps into the greenhouse at this time of year and have them flowering and looking perfect for Christmas and right through to the new year so a huge six month period of flowering if not a little bit longer They are definitely at their most prolific about now and that I will tie in with one of the disadvantages which is that they tend to be at their absolute peak just as we're all withdrawing from our gardens and the weather is getting rough and I think that's one of the reasons they're not as popular as dahlias because we don't tend to be out in our gardens to appreciate them at this time and the garden centres have all decided it's Christmas so you don't really get a huge variety to buy but that's not a reason not to grow them because I am going to my allotment today it's early November and I am going to pick armfuls of these and there is no other plant in the garden that you can pick armfuls of in November I promise you they are very very easy to grow so they require very little attention they are tolerant of neglect they're tolerant of drought they are not tolerant of wet so that's one thing that uh, is a drawback we'll come on to that but they don't like to be soggy there are as many different shapes of chrysanthemum as there are dahlias so you get those great big giant incurved footballs that you see on display usually in sort of toxic shades of atomic yellow and things like that at Chelsea but those are not my kind of thing the ones I really like is the very delicate little sprays that you can put in with other flowers and they add lots and lots of colour to a bouquet They grow really well in containers and I have been very mean to some of mine and planted them in some old troughs that were abandoned at the allotment and they are so happy in these troughs, a west-facing position up against the shed. They often don't get watered and look a bit droopy and yet they flower and flower and flower so they love it there. They are massively easy to 
propagate, which is something that I hope you would appreciate, Julia. So you can either divide the clumps uh, quite brutally, you know, bread knife or hurry hurry treatment is fine for them. You can take cuttings almost any time of the year of so long as the shoots are green and growing. And they also have a lovely habit of sort of growing along the ground a little bit and putting some roots down from the stem. And you can just break those stems off as well and plant them as a new plant. So really sort of a self-rooted cutting. So not a lot of work to do. And of course, as I've said, the absolute joy of them is that they last so, so long uh, when you pick them. They're one of the few flowers that I don't bother to plunge into a bucket of water when I collect them at the allotment because on a cool day, they'll come home just in a trug and I can re-snip the stems, put them in some water and they'll look great. So I'm not going to sugarcoat it because there are some things that aren't so great about chrysanthemums and let's get them out of the way. So first of all is they can sometimes be at their best just as they're about to get wrecked and I suspect with some of the weather that we've got coming over the next few weeks that they will get trashed quite quickly. So one thing that's important with chrysanthemums, if you really want the best blooms, is first of all to stake them because they're not all very good at supporting themselves. Some are, and I'll come on to those. Or grow them in a polytunnel or bring them into a greenhouse for their flowering time because that will just make sure that the flowers don't get blemished. They are susceptible to rust, you know, a similar rust, and there are all sorts of different rusts, but the rust that you'll be familiar with is the sort that hollyhocks get, those little sort of pustules of rusty material under the leaves, and they do get that, and it's not very sightly. So what I tend to do is to strip a lot of the leaves off if I get that problem. And if you want to avoid it, then just avoid growing chrysanthemums on their own as a monoculture. If they're mixed in with other plants, they tend to be a little bit healthier in my experience. The scent, of course, is something I can't do anything about. And, you know, (laughs) scent has such powerful associations for people, doesn't it? And it's very difficult to get away from the scent of chrysanthemums being associated perhaps with funerals or with grannies I don't know but people have a very strong opinion on the scent of chrysanthemums I absolutely love it it's sort of polarizing like marmite or tomato leaf smell but you know it is what it is if you don't like it I'm not going to convince you the other way but try and embrace it if you can and I think a final reason which will unravel itself is that you know it's not as easy to buy them and find interesting ones as it is for example dahlias because so many people are growing dahlias now they're hybridizing them there's so much choice but there's a little bit more of a limit to where you can buy chrysanthemums from I have some favourite sort of nurseries that I would go to. Halls of Hedden, uh, which you might have seen on Gardener's World quite recently, is my go-to place for chrysanthemum varieties. But also there are some really long established uh, businesses like Chrysanthemums Direct and Woolman's who are great sources. And it's not just of plants, but also of information about how to grow chrysanthemums. So check them out. 
I do have some favourite varieties, which we'll put in the show notes, but my number one, I think, is Dixter Orange. So this comes from Great Dixter. It was singled out by Christopher Lloyd. It's a remarkable plant uh, because it's self-supporting and produces this beautiful uh, hedge-like clump of foliage, which then is covered in orange flowers and it doesn't require any support doesn't require any pinching out and it flowers nicely from the end of June through to the end of August and then it sort of stops and I normally cut it back down at that that point and it starts to sort of grow a nice cushion of foliage again but it is it's a chrysanthemum for people who don't like chrysanthemums and it makes a brilliant (laughs) sort of hedging or edge of border plant. It's sort of a couple of feet tall, but very, very well behaved. And Julia, a bit of that is going to be coming your way at some point when I dig mine up. Excellent news, that is good. (laughs) There is, if you look very closely and search very hard, a chrysanthemum called Daniel Cooper, which I do (laughs) grow, but only because we share the same name. But but it's uh, rose pink and a little bit scruffy, so I don't know what that says about me, really. (laughs) I'd ask to have that name changed by Deepole, Daniel. Definitely not a bit scruffy. (laughs) (laughs) But slightly rose pink with my headphones on today. (laughs) You are a bit today with your hot ears, yes. (laughs) So what you haven't said is that how do you overwinter them? Because I had one called Aloise Orange, and it was taken from a cutting from my dear friend and gardener Lionel who I lost last year I've loved having basically him in the garden with me and unfortunately in the prolonged cold period we had early in the year I lost the whole lot because mine have been sheltered outside by the greenhouse and have survived every winter but not this year so do you think they're better off grown in polytunnels and greenhouses or do you think it's okay to keep them outside and just to keep take cuttings which is what I didn't do well, I think it's very easily done with anything that's, you know, we're all, we're all taking risks with dahlias now, aren't we? And it's and chrysanthemums are not much different. So uh, the, the rubellum and Korean chrysanthemums, they are the hardiest ones and they can reliably be left outside. Things like Aloise orange are a little bit borderline. So you can do exactly as you would do with dahlias, dig them up, shake as much soil off the roots as you can. They don't form tubers, but they do form a sort of crown with lots and lots of roots. And you can put those in trays or boxes of the compost that you've taken out of your uh, grow bag. And you can just overwinter them really quite dry under the greenhouse staging in a cold frame, or if you don't have any of those, which many people don't, then just stick them in a shed so long as it's not too cold in there. They don't particularly need any light over winter and just bring them out again sort of March April time into the light and they will start sprouting if you give them a little bit of water so you can do that yeah they are not unlike dahlias because they don't entirely die down under the ground mulching can be a bit iffy because I find Mm -hmm. that mulching holds water round the crown and that is what they don't like so I don't mulch mine because I think it can do more harm than good of course probably the a good safety mechanism is to just take a few cuttings or whip those 
side shoots off that we were talking about that maybe have some roots on already and put them in the greenhouse if you're not sure but I would say that they are very very easy to replace if you buy them as rooted cuttings from people like Halls of Hedden you can order them now they'll arrive when you ask them to in the spring a new cutting just like a dahlia will produce a flowering sized plant that year so you don't have to wait for ages for them to become established and you would be able to replace your Aloise orange really easily and keep remembering Lionel that way he'll never know that it wasn't his his one. Oh no that's good I'm inspired to order some for this weekend now thank you Dan for the heads up on where to go and just one other last thing so the supermarkets particularly and some garden centres are stuffed full at entrances of those really big kind of round like a massive box ball but they're all chrysanthemum flowers um Mm. and they are quite expensive I mean they make a really nice gift a birthday gift for someone but they're not actually all one flower are they they're a bit like my basil aren't they so do you think it'd be quite easy to after they finish flowering tip them out and have a thrifty go at cultivating maybe three to five more plants have you ever done that Yes, I have. And that is a great tip because the nurserymen are just interested in producing a flowering sized plant that looks impressive as quickly as possible. So even those ones that often get sort of given on Mother's Day and things like that, they're usually three or five cuttings that have been put in a pot and they just make a nice plant very quickly. So once they're finished or even before they're finished you can literally pull these things apart and grow each of the cuttings on separately to make a new plant the ones that you're seeing the big hummocks that you see in the supermarkets and garden centers about now are charm chrysanthemums almost like a topiary ball and covered in in little little flowers not not particularly for cutting but to be enjoyed like that so yes and you can chop them up and and grow them away if you love them yes yeah no brilliant oh well there we are so I mean I do like chrysanthemums having disliked them for a number of years but now I think Lionel introduced them to me and I yeah there are so many deep deep burgundy colours and pinks and Mm. everything aren't there so um, Mm. brilliant I'm going to get going thank you Dan Right, now to round off this episode, we always compile a list of jobs to do in the next couple of weeks, and it's my turn to enlighten us. So, jobs to do. Start planting tulip bulbs and indoor bulbs to be forced, as we've said. Keep gutters clear of leaves and moss. Gather fallen leaves and store them in hessian bags to break down into leaf mould eventually. Clean bird feeders thoroughly before filling with fresh seed. Sow sweet peas, more sweet peas, as I've already started mine, broad beans, peas, radishes and rocket and winter salad leaves. Cut away the old stems of autumn fruiting raspberries, blackberries and loganberries. Reduce excessive top growth to prevent the wind damage. Tidy and wash greenhouses and clear benches. Continue to mow lawns, but only on dry days. And finally, make the most of the autumn colour around and visit local gardens and lots of local places open to the public uh, where you can enjoy all those firecracking colours. Yes, I mean, you live very close to an extremely famous garden for autumn colour, don't you, Julia? I do. I live five minutes from Sheffield Park, which, if you don't know it, is a National Trust 
property well it's a garden the garden is what what they own and it is so renowned for autumn color they have these beautiful lakes and honestly the variety of trees they are so many specimen trees and the colors are just breathtaking it's probably your top one to go and visit if you're in the sussex area it's beautiful Yes, I think we probably both grew up with jigsaws of Sheffield Park, didn't we? It was quite the rage (laughs) at that time, whenever that might have been. Beautiful place to visit and many others across the country too. So before we go, we like to share what we will be up to between now and the next episode. So Dan, you can start off, what are you up to and where can we find you? Well, this weekend, just coming up, November the 5th, bonfire night, I'm going to be returning to Chiswick Flower Market in West London. They call it the Columbia Road of West London. And that's a really cracking flower market with lots of locally grown British flowers and British plants. So definitely worth a visit. And then on Thursday, I'll be at Hever Castle, also featured on Gardener's World very recently with those incredible staggering Italianate gardens. I shall be there for their Christmas fair on November the 9th. And then looking a little bit further ahead, I'll be at Denby's Wine Estate near Dorking in Surrey on Sunday the 12th of November for a Christmas market. So it's all festive from now on. I'm going to be ho-ho-hoing all the way through (laughs) the next two months. Well, hopefully you won't be doing too much ho-hoing if you tuck into the Denby's wine that might be on (laughs) offer when you're selling your wares. Oh, it's (laughs) such a shame I have to drive. Otherwise, I might have to bring some home for consumption there. What are you going to be up to? Busy, no doubt. Yes, well, so Alatex actually will be exhibiting at the Country Living Christmas Fair on the 8th, the 11th of November at the Islington Design Centre. Following that, they're going to be in Harrogate on the 30th of November to the 3rd. And I am actually going to be joining them on the 11th of November in, in Islington, sharing my grow your own tips and tricks for winter sowing. I'll be running little events all day long. So if you're going to that Country Living Fair, then do come and say hello to me. Come and have a sit. You might need to rest your weary legs after a day of shopping and I will also be selling signed copies of the Little Girls Cookbook at the same time so hopefully I'll see you there. That sounds brilliant. I do love a Christmas fair so uh, the atmosphere essential for getting me in the mood and of course we're going to be recording a special episode at Alatex on November the 24th and we're both very excited about that. So that's all for this episode. It just remains for me to say goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. You've been listening to the Two Good Gardeners podcast with Dan Cooper and Julia Parker. Sponsored by Alatex, home of the modern Victorian greenhouse, designed in the UK for over 70 years and built worldwide. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then why not click follow on your favourite podcast platform so you don't miss out. Leaving a rating or writing a review will help us to reach other gardening enthusiasts like you. We'll return here with a freshly prepared smorgasbord of delights in a fortnight. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at DanCooperGarden, at Parkers underscore Patch, and at Two Good Gardeners, or visit our websites. You'll find the addresses in the show notes. If you've got questions for either of us, you can email them to hello at dancoopergarden.com. Until the next time, happy gardening!